0: Open up to First Kings chapter nineteen this evening. So this morning, and hopefully you got the kids got the handouts right. Great. All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, again we thank you. We thank you that you are gracious. We thank you that you give us your Word, and I pray that you would encourage us with what we read and what we hear from your word, may it uh, give us greater insight into how you work, and that you'd also give us understanding about application for our day, and uh, may it be an encouragement to us as we look at it to uh, trust you more, find encouragement in you, and as we were just singing, uh, run to you when we are discouraged and overwhelmed. Help us to find our strength and comfort in you. And we pray for your understanding as we look at your word this evening, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we read, I just wanted to uh, talk about the idea that uh, something about our human nature is we just typically enjoy when we see examples or we learn about uh, weaknesses in some of those people that we consider heroes or strong people, don't we? Isn't there, isn't there something in human nature that says when you see somebody sort of seemingly superhuman that when we realize they have flaws in a way that, that kind of makes us feel good, like you know, maybe we're not so bad or brings them down a little bit, right? Well, we have one of those chapters here with Elijah where he just comes off this incredible victory in, on Mount Carmel and the, the fire came down and consumed the sacrifice and the water was all licked up and, and then they end up taking out all the prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets of Baal or whatever that were there. And great, great victory. And then we find in this passage uh, some evidence of him being human and more like us than uh, us having the experience of the mountain uh, Mount Carmel with the great victory there. So in some ways we look at this and we take some kind of satisfaction that he's human too. But I think in some ways uh, some people have looked at this passage and been have been too hard actually on Elijah for what we see here. So without revealing all the details let's uh, begin reading verses 1 through 4. And hopefully I'll show you what I mean by that. And uh, we'll see uh, what we can learn here from Elijah and what he he goes through. So we see in verse 1, it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid, and arose, and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. So. What's happening here? Like we said, we just had the experience we talked about in chapter 18 where Elijah uh, was used by God, and of course it was God that brought the fire, and and God was the real hero of the story, but Elijah was the only prophet of the Lord, was faithful uh, to the Lord, and carried out those things that he said, and it was a great victory, and we saw the response of the people to what happened, that there were many people in Israel that saw that and said, the God, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So there was seemingly a great response to this miracle that Elijah does. But then we see here uh, there is a royal rejection of that revelation that happened there, that miracle that was displayed in chapter 18. So let's, again... Dive into some of the details. Verse 1, we see the royal conference or the royal report here. Ahab is telling Jezebel, catching Queen Jezebel up about what happened. So he says all that Elijah had done here. He explains everything and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Ahab catches up Jezebel. He had observed this, but she had not. So he's filling her in on the details. And we see her response to that. Is she amazed? Is she uh, overwhelmed? Is Ahab overwhelmed at how the sacrifice was consumed and therefore that they're being convinced and turning to the Lord as well? Nope, nope. So instead she issues a royal threat here to Elijah. Verse two, it says, "'Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So she sends a messenger. Um, it's, it's an interesting thought to me. She manages to get a messenger to him for him to actually hear the message but not an assassin to him to take him out. Uh, isn't that kind of funny? but um, At least it is to me. But she gets a message to him somehow and she is saying, may the gods do so to me and more also. This, this phrase is a common phrase used throughout the Old Testament. It's basically an oath. Like, if this doesn't happen, uh, may this happen to me. And, and if you remember, the, the king of Israel, Saul, actually used this kind of phrase at least once or twice when he was uh, talking about different things that were happening. I think when he was pursuing David, he may have used language like this as well. But um, she's basically making a vow. Basically, I'm going to make your life like one of them. That is, one of the prophets that you killed. I'm going to have you killed just like you killed them. So we have here uh, the king and the queen. In spite of there being a tremendous miracle of God, as a revelation of his power and his work, they've rejected it. Now, wouldn't you think a miracle of that nature, who can deny it? Who who can deny that God did that? It seems like an undeniable revelation of the power of God and that he is the Lord, right? You would think that would turn people to believe in him and reject their false gods, but that's not what happens. So in spite of this incredible Miraculous revelation, they've rejected it. And it just goes to show that it's not just a matter of people seeing something happen in order to believe. It is ultimately a work of God to turn someone's heart away from their sin and back to Him. It's not just if they see a certain thing happen. So that's very helpful for us to remember in our own ministry in working with people and sharing the gospel with people. It ultimately takes a work of God to work in their heart to bring them to Christ. It's not just a matter of us living right and demonstrating our faith before them. Ultimately, it has to be a work of God in their heart. Now, he may use our lives, our testimonies, and how we go through things as a means of working in their heart and ultimately coming to Christ. But it's not a guarantee if they've seen or heard certain things that they're going to come to Christ. There are children who grow up in the houses of godly people that turn away from the Lord. There are people that grow up in houses of ungodly people that turn to the Lord. Ultimately, it's a working of God in a person's heart. And we see here, in spite of this great revelation, uh, the king and queen are not convinced. Many in Israel were, in response to what we saw, they, they are clearly uh, indicating God is uh, the Lord. The Lord is God. But yet Ahab and his wife are not convinced. So we have a royal rejection here. the revelation that happens. But then we see the retreat, the retreat of the prophet in verses three and four. It says, and he was afraid and rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, I'm going to introduce a little controversy here. Um, Does anyone, is anyone using the King James here tonight? I figure Bill is probably our only typical, right? Right. Um, if you have the King James, it actually has a different translation. Then he was afraid. And I just want to explain, and this p- partly ties into the discussion about being too hard on Elijah here. So there is actually a Hebrew textual issue or, or difference in, in different manuscripts on this word. Now, just to illustrate, I know I know all of you love Hebrew and you're experts at Hebrew, so. Um, You probably already understand this, but I just wanted to share with you. uh, Anyone know what these letters are? You got it? All right. So um, this is the root word for where we get he was afraid. Now, do you know enough about Hebrew to know what's missing from this word? The vowels are missing. That's right. So in the original manuscript, the original writing of the scripture in the Old Testament, they did not include vowels. They only included the consonants. So these are the consonants in the word for he was afraid. So the full uh, word with the vowels looks like that. Now that makes more sense, right? All right, so that means he was afraid. All right, but look at this other word. See how close that is? The only difference really is the two dots there under the the R, that that, that letter is actually an R in, in the middle there. Um, and then the little line under the, the little one is a yod. You know where Jesus says a jot or a tittle? That's actually uh, uh, the, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it's actually yod, or sometimes transliterated to Jot. all right? So that's the second, well, I'm I'm saying second, but it, it reads from left to right, I'm sorry, or right to left, which is opposite, I'm sorry. I'm getting too deep in the Hebrew, but you can see that these two words are very close, right? So the root word and the he was afraid, and then just a very small difference for the other option, which is he saw. And this is actually how the King James translates it. So I don't want to have a big argument and it doesn't break or uh, stand on this alone, but I think it feeds into the idea that we're maybe a little too hard on Elijah and what happens here with Jezebel. Um, the uh, the uh, translation of he saw, I also think fits. And you might say, well, how does that fit he saw and then he runs for his life? I think the idea is this, and and this is an important part, I think, of what's going on here. Why is Elijah so discouraged about what happens? Why is he ready to die? And I think it's simple. He was hoping, essentially, for a national revival to take place in response to what God did there with the sacrifice. And there were people who were impressed and seemed to recognize that the Lord was God. But probably Elijah hoped that that would extend to the king and queen as well. uh, And that there would be a national turning back to God, not just a remnant turning back to God. So uh, I think that explains a lot of his discouragement. He is running for his life. I I don't believe that's necessarily just a cowardly act. In reality, it's what he needed to do to get away and be safe because they were coming after him. So he needed to get away. But um, I think uh, we need to understand where he went. Now this may be a little hard to see, but um, down here at the very bottom is Beersheba. That is where he runs. Now do you remember where Ahab and uh, Jezebel are at? They're in the northern kingdom, right? So Jezebel. Beersheba is down at the bottom of the southern kingdom. So he is clearly as far away in Israel as he can get from them by going down to the very bottom of the south of Israel. In fact, there's a phrase used throughout the scriptures of the top to the bottom of Israel. They say, from Dan to Beersheba. It means from the top to the bottom, essentially therefore meaning everyone within it. So he's gone down to Beersheba, down at the very bottom to be safe. So that's where he's at. And then it tells us also that he goes even farther south. Notice uh, in verse uh, four, it says, "'He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, "'and came and sat down under a juniper tree, And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my fathers. All right, so he basically requests death here. Uh, And again, I think his frustration is he's had this ministry, resisting the king and queen, and this great miracle takes place, and it's not enough to turn the nation of Israel completely back to God and to revive the worship of the Lord holistically across the nation. It's clear from Jezebel's response that the persecution of the Lord's followers and prophets is going to continue, it's not gonna stop. So he is discouraged that it is not gonna change perhaps to the way ultimately that he had hoped it would. All right, but let's look now at how the Lord refreshes Elijah. So in verses 5 through 8, we see refreshment from the Lord comes in his discouraged state. And what happens there? So verses 5 and 6, it says, "...he lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake on hot stones and a jar of water, so he ate and drank and lay down again." So we have here, first of all, that uh, rest or refreshment was required for Elijah, given how much he's traveled. Now, on that map that I showed you, Beersheba is, uh, from what I read, approximately 100 miles or more from where he was. So he traveled 100 miles to get to that point. Um, and then it says even a day day's journey beyond that. So he's traveled a lot. He's definitely... Tired. He went through a dramatic experience with that um, event on Mount Carmel there. So he's tired. Rest is required. And certainly we know and, and could take spiritual principle as well from the fact that it's easy to be discouraged in our walk with the Lord when we're tired. Is it not? God has made our bodies to require sleep. And when we don't get enough sleep, it can easily le- lead to discouragement. My wife could tell you many stories about how sometimes I get super tired and then I start talking all kinds of negative and discouraging things and it's like, you just, you just need to sleep. You're just too tired, right? You're thinking you think it's a little mixed up. So certainly that could be a factor as well, what's going on with Elijah here. And the angel appears. Now it's interesting, it says here, the angel that appears, It says an angel, okay, touching him, it's not clear there. I think it's in verse 7. It says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again a second time. Uh, I believe that reference of the angel of the Lord is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. I, I believe that's our Lord and Savior that's appearing there and encouraging Elijah, specifically him, not just one of the other angels. But um, we see that Elijah is given food to eat. Always an encouragement and help, right? Good food. The Lord gives him strength. The refreshment here is repeated. Notice he, he sleeps. He's touched by the angel to wake up and eat, and then he goes back to sleep. He does it again, verse 7. It says that the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. Um, So he arises and eats. And again, I think this supports the idea that maybe we're too hard on Elijah sometimes. The Lord is not saying to Elijah, What are you doing? Get back to Israel. Why are you running away afraid? Because Elijah actually is going somewhere. He is going to the mountain of God, actually, uh, called Horeb or Sinai. So he's actually going to have a conversation with the Lord about Israel, which we're going to see. So we see how he then resumes his trip in verse 8. So it says, So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So we see he reaches Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, I believe that this passage is significant for several reasons because there is a purposeful comparison being made of Elijah to Moses. Who, wh- what is significant about Moses? Several things. Moses is the one who went on the mountain of God, was there 40 days and 40 nights, Right? with no food, and God sustained him, very similar to what we see with Elijah. He goes a 40 days and nights journey, um, and it, it is quite a journey, but what I've read is that it shouldn't have taken 40 days to get there. So the significance of 40 is there for symbolic purposes, to associate or connect him with what we see with Moses. Moses also had the role of receiving the covenant, right? The Ten Commandments, uh, and uh, was the representative of Israel before God in establishing that covenant between Israel and God. So what we're gonna have here with Elijah is him as a parallel for Moses or representing uh, the nation of Israel like Moses did. And in this case, instead of establishing the covenant, What we're gonna see with Elijah is he's actually bringing charges against Israel before the Lord for breaking the covenant because they've been unfaithful, they've been worshiping Baal and Elijah is essentially indicting them before the Lord. So let's see um, the rest of the map here. This is a little busy, I I apologize, but was having trouble finding one with the mountain in it. So we see Beersheba up here where he was. And uh, there's a little picture of a tree that he's sitting under there. And then all the way down here is Mount Horeb. So according to my sources, again, it's probably another 200 miles beyond what he had already done or more. So it's quite a journey. But again, the significance is the same area, the same mountain where Moses met with God with the original covenant being given in Exodus 20 we see there. All right, so we have Elijah meeting with the Lord. So we have uh, the rejection by Israel reported to the Lord here by Elijah. So let's look at verses 9 and 10 and what happens there. It says, Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So we have here the reason for his visit is brought up, right? Why are you here? And again, if we're being hard on Elijah, you may see that as a really negative uh, implication in that question, but I think it's, it's not that necessarily. It's just an opportunity for him to express his purpose in being there. This question is asked why he's there, and he's explaining the purpose of his visit. So he says about himself and the situation, look at verse 10. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. We'd have to agree, right? We see, in chapter, starting in chapter 17, how he confronts Ahab and all of his sin. He basically says, it's not going to rain until I say so. And then we see him confront Ahab and say, hey, get together all your prophets and we'll have a contest. And he does this contest and they kill these false prophets. Uh, so he has been very zealous for the Lord. This is an accurate report. I don't think he's exaggerating here. All right, now he also goes on and he says, Israel has forsaken your covenant. I think that's significant given he's being... Uh, symbolically representing a second Moses here and how he's going to the mountain where the covenant was given and he is saying how Israel has forsaken the covenant. He is pointing out how they've thrown down the altars. Remember one of the first things he did when he was uh, preparing his sacrifice, what did he do? He restored, I heard the answer, very good. He restored the altar, right? He put the altar of the Lord Uh, back together that had been destroyed and and he assembled the 12 the stones of the 12 tribes of Israel, remember that? Uh, Symbolic of how they needed to be unified as a nation in the worship of the Lord and they hadn't been. He points out how they uh, were killing the prophets as well and he says that he's the only one left. Now, we might take issue and say well remember Obadiah? Remember what Obadiah was doing? Obadiah had preserved 100 prophets, right, and was feeding them with bread and water. Uh, But what you could say is that Elijah is essentially the only one doing a public ministry in resistance to the regime. And and, and that seems to be accurate, that he is the uh, public representative for the Lord taking them on. And he is essentially standing alone in that ministry responsibility. Um, So, we see him point out he's the only one. Uh, But we also see the revelation of God here. Very interesting how God reveals himself. Look at verses 11 to 13. It says, So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by. You remember who else that happened to? Moses. Lord was passing by. Behold, the Lord was rending the mountain with a strong wind, a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. When Elisha heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So we see here, again, this revelation of the Lord, similar to what we see with Moses. And uh, yet, he uses wind, earthquake, and fire. Uh, And yet, that's not ultimately the revelation of the Lord. Where does the revelation of the Lord come? Ultimately, it's in that still, small, quiet voice, right? So again, I think there's some symbolism here, the idea being the Lord may work through dramatic and significant things like wind and earthquake and fire, like he did with the fire on the altar, but ultimately God is working quietly through his word. That is the means of him communicating and revealing himself to his people. And that work is often very quiet and subtle work. I think it's significant to note that. We also see how Elijah then repeats his reasons why he has come to the mountain to speak to the Lord. We see in verse 13, he covers himself because remember no man can ultimately see God uh, and live. So he's covering himself here speaking and he says in verse 14 I have been very zealous for the Lord the God of hosts the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away so he repeats his reasons here in explaining again that the children of Israel have been rebellious against the covenant now it's interesting, we'll see here then the response of the Lord. How does the Lord respond to what I, uh, Elijah is saying? So we're gonna see here a response of judgment and preservation uh, in the nation of Israel. So let's look at 15 to 18. It says, the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazel king of over Aram, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall you anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So we see here, he is ultimately establishing judgment. And I believe this is in direct response to what Elijah has observed in his reporting. Not that, I mean, obviously God already knew this, but I believe it was an accurate report of the state of Israel, and God is going to respond with judgment. Notice, first of all, that he is to anoint a new king of Syria, Hazel. So he is, this is a nation that is an enemy of Israel and in fact is going to cause much destruction in the nation of Israel. And yet uh, God is appointing him as a leader as he does with nations. He sets up kings to accomplish his purposes. And the purpose that he is setting this king up for is judgment on the nation of Israel for their wickedness. He also is going to appoint Jehu, Uh, in the nation of Israel and he is going to wipe out the house of Ahab. He is going to wipe out the house of Ahab. Um, And then we're going to see that he also is anointing Elisha, which we'll get to here at the end of the chapter as we finish. But uh, verse 17, it tells us ultimately why this is being done. It's for judgment on Israel for their faithlessness, for their breaking of the covenant, he is punishing them. It says, verse 17, it shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Now, I I don't know about you, but I don't normally right away think of Elisha as the instrument of God's judgment on the people, right? But that is a part of what God has him doing is carrying out judgment on people who have rejected the Lord. So what we see here then in verse 18 is the preserving of the nation of Israel, uh, I'm sorry, preserving of a remnant in Israel. So we have a preserving of a remnant that uh, we see in verse 18, a significant verse and concept here says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, Elijah may have been correct about himself being the only public prophet resisting the king and queen uh, and carrying out that kind of ministry, but there is ultimately 7,000 people that still... Uh, are trusting the Lord are obedient to Him, and are rejecting the baal worship that 's going on. but if you know the math, how many people did uh, Moses approximately bring out of Egypt as the nation of Israel? I heard one point five and one point five million right is what you 're saying, and it, yeah, anywhere between uh, one to three million maybe came out with Moses. Now, certainly there's been wars and there's been people that have been killed, but certainly children and... and uh, I don't know the exact population of Israel at this time, but it's probably somewhere in the one to five million range. So to have 7,000 is a ridiculously small number, right? Now, it's certainly more than one, but... What we see here, and I think it's super important for the rest of the book to understand this, because remember, this book is being written to the remnant that's in captivity. And what we see here is a shift, a huge shift in how God is going to work with the nation of Israel. No longer are they worshiping him and promoting The worship of him as the national religion. But now God is working to simply preserve a remnant out of Israel. And that's what we're going to see throughout the rest of the book. It is a preservation and a focus on the remnants who believe. It is a huge change and indication of how Israel has rejected the Lord. And yet... He is preserving a small group of people for himself. And Paul, in the New Testament, in Romans 11, talks about this and how God preserves a remnant. And that is uh, how God continues to work, choosing out of the nations a people for his name. He is not using, at this time, The whole nation of Israel that were originally called as his people, but they've rejected him. So he is calling individuals that are this remnant, these chosen people, uh, and now out of all nations that worship him and are his people. And and this is really a transition we're seeing because of their disobedience and breaking the covenant but a very important concept of how God works in the world and how we see him work differently with the nation of Israel hereafter. He is preserving a remnant for himself. So we're going to see Elijah join, I'm sorry, Elijah talk to Elisha so that Elisha will be uh, anointed to be that helper that uh, Elijah needs, and the one to transition eventually his ministry over to. So let's look at verses 19 to 21 and see how we have the recruitment of Elisha here as the first fulfillment of what God said about Elisha being appoint- or anointed. So let's look at 19 and 21. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him and he with the 12. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my, mother, or my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. So, we see here in verse 19, the, the summons. He is summoning Elisha, to, or he's appointing him as the successor here. Um, so it tells us how he threw the mantle on Elisha. So uh, imagine that. You're, you're just working on the farm, doing your normal thing. You have no indication of what's coming, And all of a sudden, this mantle's thrown on you. Now, Elisha seems to have understood who Elijah was. He he probably was familiar with him and and understood. So he's just doing his normal thing, and boom, he's being called to go and serve the Lord in this completely new way that would require leaving his current responsibilities. Now we see that Elisha does it. But I think it's good for us to think about how we respond when we become aware that God wants us to do something. Are we quick to respond? So there's a number of uh, children in here. Someday, hopefully, the Lord will make very clear to you what he wants you to do with your life. Are you going to be willing to, to do that? Quickly respond to that? But you know, it's not just children, it's adults too. Sometimes we become aware we need to do something and we sometimes wrestle with it, don't we? But Elisha responds immediately. Now, interesting, uh, in the separation here in verse 20, we see Elisha basically ask for uh, a pause. Can, Can I say goodbye to my mom and my dad? Now, for Bible scholars out there, you're probably familiar with a passage in the New Testament that this reminds you of. Do you, do you think of that passage when you think about this? What's that passage? Or what's the general phrasing? Right. Um, there, there's this uh, situation where Jesus brings up with um, either loving your mother and father and not be, not being willing to serve him or loving them more than God. So there's that tension. There's also the... The, the thing he talks about with the plow, he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom, right? So either of those, those situations that Jesus brings up, you can look at the situation and say, was he doing the right thing here? Was he hesitating to carry out what God's calling him to do? I, I believe he is not hesitating at all. What he's really trying to do is create a clean break because he is about to leave and he knows the obligation is going to be prioritizing God and the service to Elijah and that he's not going to just be able to come back and see his family anytime he wants. So he is setting himself up to separate from them because he is making this new commitment. So I don't think it was wrong at all for Elisha to do this. In fact, notice what he does. Um, he asks for this separation. Elijah agrees. Elijah's answers, <laughs> on the surface, doesn't seem real clear to us. What did I do to you, right? I mean, I, what is he saying? I, I think the idea is that uh, that's fine. We haven't we haven't stepped into the the new ministry yet, and and uh, there's time for you to do this. Um, and then what does he do? It says that Elisha return. Uh, returns from following him and he takes a pair of oxen remember he was working the plow with there were 12 pairs of oxen now probably the average israelite family didn't have 12 oxen so this is probably a pretty wealthy family all right and he was the 12th one right so what does he do he takes those oxen and it says the implements what what does that mean The the yoke, and I believe the point is he's taking the very things he uses to do the work of plowing and he's burning them along with the animals that were doing the work. So in other words, he's not going back to this work. It is a sign of a clear break. And notice that there's a bunch of people there. It says he sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and he gave it to the people and they ate. So in other words, he's having a big feast. He is publicly announcing he's leaving the farm and he's going to serve with Elijah. So, I believe this is a clear indication of his dedication to the Lord and his clear break separating from his old life responsibilities to focus on this new ministry that God has given him. And what is that new ministry? Is it Going around preaching everywhere and publicly confronting kings and queens right away? Well, no. Actually, what he's going to start doing is simply serving Elijah. Notice it says, Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Just like Joshua serving Moses. Simple service. That's where it starts. Before he's going to have this more public ministry and do these great things where he's doing miracles and all those kinds of things, he's going to start with simple service. What a great lesson. What a great lesson about following God and serving him. We humbly serve him. And you know what? Most of us, most of our lives, this is what service to the Lord is. It's simple service. Humble service. We may never get significant public recognition. We simply serve and honor the Lord. You know what is said about Elisha later on? It is said that he is the servant who pours water on the hands of Elijah. At least initially, that's how he was known. Just somebody who helps this prophet Elijah. And he humbly wholeheartedly embraces this calling on his life and it's a great example for how we should embrace the service that God calls us to but we see throughout this chapter is a significant reminder of how God may at times do dramatic things to bring people to himself but many times it's simply through the quiet working of his word that he works and he is constantly working to preserve for himself a people for his name. He is calling people out for his namesake. And when we add that up, if we were to be able, and we're, we're not, we don't know. But if we were to able to add that up, it is probably a small percentage of the total people in the world. We're in the minority, but it is a privileged minority, is it not? It should, number one, make us thankful. But number two, help us understand how God works. We need to be faithful. We need to simply serve. We need to share the gospel. We need to pray for people to come to Christ. But understand that ultimately it's in God's hands who he brings to Christ and who he doesn't. We just need to be faithful. We need to simply serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for these faithful servants here tonight who uh, come out in bad weather and are eager to hear your word and to worship you. Help us, Father, to be faithful. Help, forgive us, Father, at least me, and I don't think I'm the only one, but Father, forgive us for times when we want, we want credit, we want recognition, and really, in your service, we deserve none of it, because we wouldn't even be able to serve you if it weren't for your grace at work in our lives and for all that was done for us in Christ. Forgive us for being proud and thinking highly of ourselves or wanting those things, but Father, help us to, like Elisha, have this commitment to just follow you and set aside the other things that get in the way of that and to humbly serve. Help us, Father, to humbly serve. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.